three. All right, hello everybody. Welcome to Right of Reply, Episode Three: War, Foreign Policy, and Emerging Technology. My name is David, and I'll be joining the team for this episode. Now, today we're going to be interviewing Dr. Breed. He's a major in the Canadian Armed Forces, military faculty at RMC, and an adjunct professor at Queen's University. He's the deputy director of the Center for International Defense Policy and the associate chair of RMC's public administration program. He's an expert in the field, and we're very lucky to have him on the show today. But before we get to that conversation, the ROR panel will be discussing some of the recent developments in military technology. So to start with that, Norman will be discussing artificial intelligence. Thanks, David. So artificial intelligence is a emerging technology that the military has been using for quite some time. Um, so there is a philosophical debate on the meaning of artificial intelligence, but in this case, let's just define define and measure artificial intelligence as the a machine's ability to perceive its environment, circumstances, and factors to be successful in the task it was assigned or made to do. And these tasks are difficult. Uh, are these tasks are def defined as something that would typ typically require human intelligence. So, just just a brief history of AI. Um, it was first dated back to uh, the Second World War, where Alan Turing made an uh, electromechanical machine um, called a bomb, which uh, could decipher the Enigma code, uh, which the Germans used. And uh, this machine um, used you know, a thousands and thousands of possible settings to decipher the original uh, configuration of the Enigma machine, and that was used to decipher, that was used to uh, get the, to, to get the message. Um, but nowadays, uh, AI is used in uh, cybersecurity, data, data collection, optimi optimization of logistics, and um, op but what, uh, the most interesting use of AI is definitely the missiles and drones. Um, missiles and drones claim to develop a missile that is self-guiding and that can change direction mid-flight. Now, this specific missile can make its own decision, so it can, like, you know, go out and find its own target. Um, so, <clears throat> so the other uses of AI include um, optimization of logistics. The, uh, the Army has used AI to improve uh, speed and accuracy, of reduces risk to soldiers and, you know, other military personnel. Um, and yeah, um, and I, I think talking about AI is a great way to transition into the topic of uh, of cybersecurity. Now, cybersecurity is defined as governments trying to protect internet systems, uh, including the hardware itself, the software, and the data from cyber attacks. And you know, part of living in the digital era is studying how private information from our tech can be infiltrated by people on the web, and how that information can be used in a variety of ways. Now, an example that got a lot of attention in the media was when the U.S. Department of Defense recruited hackers to hack the Pentagon in 2016 uh, in order to test out its security. Now, the program itself was called Hack the Pentagon and was made to mirror some of the same challenges that large companies faced and uh, their recruitment of white hat hackers to test out their cyber systems. So this program essentially hired hackers to participate in you know, a controlled, limited time period hack where the goal was to seek out any vulnerabilities that uh, could be used to infiltrate information by international hackers. And a huge prompt for this program, of course, was after Russian hackers hacked into the Pentagon's um, email systems in uh, 2015. Now, this was also an incident that caught a lot of media attention when these hackers got a hold of the unclassified email system, which was used by the Pentagon's joint staff, which 
in sum is around 3,500 military officers and civilians who uh, work for the chairman of defense. So the hackers were able to gather the passwords and electronic signatures used by the chair to sign into the network. And ultimately the only way to stop the attack was to take down uh, the network in its entirety. And then yet again, cybersecurity became a huge theme in the 2016 American presidential elections when the Russian military intelligence service hacked the servers of the um, Democratic National Committee and the personal Gmail account as well of uh, the Clinton campaign's chairman, John Podesta, and then forwarded that information to WikiLeaks. Now, this ultimately led to the uh, Robert Mueller indictment of uh, the Russian military intel in mid-2018. So we can definitely see how cybersecurity plays a role in ensuring the overall security within a nation and how a lack thereof can cause a lot of political instability. And I think, you know, it is important in discussing cybersecurity to also recognize technologies like autonomous systems, which play into war, uh, warfare and security, which Vivi can speak a bit on. Yeah, so the autonomous systems that I'm going to talk about is what is generally referred to as drones. So drones is actually the wrong word for this technology, even though it's used so widely. Um, the word drone um, kind of implies something that either doesn't think for itself or thinks solely for itself. Um, another term that is very commonly used is unmanned aerial vehicle um, to discuss aerial drones. Uh, so this term, however, also puts the connotation on the device as something that is completely unmanned and not operated by humans. Um, a better word that has come out recently is remotely piloted aircraft, uh, which acknowledges the fact that these aircraft are piloted by multiple individuals who are actually part of a greater system of uh, ground crew, intelligence gatherers, intelligence operators, um, sensors, analysts, and various teams um, across the world. Um, so the US uh, drone program, as it's often called, is the main thing that people discuss when they think of remotely piloted aircraft. So remotely piloted aircraft or RPAs kind of emerged during the 1990s and were used in Bosnia for some surveillance, but there was a reluctance to use fire even up to uh, 2000 in the search for bin Laden. So after 9-11, there was much less caution around this. The first airstrike in Yemen was in 2002 and the first one in Pakistan was in 2004. Uh, these are the ones that we know of. There could have been ones before. There have also been strikes in Somalia, Syria, Afghanistan, and others with bases closer to the region and on U.S. soil. So RPAs have been used primarily against al-Qaeda, the Taliban, now ISIS, and al-Shabaab, among others. So RPAs are usually favored for light footprint, uh, low-impact operations, um, or what people usually call stealth operations. There is some controversy with um, accountability between the CIA's use of drones for targeted killing versus uh, military use of drones in operations, and this has received a lot of press recently. Um, also, uh, it is important to note the reason why drones or RPAs are able to be used in general 
So as of 2001, in September, the US issued the authorization of the use of military force, which essentially justified aggression against all those who were associated with the 9-11 attacks. Um, this kind of justified the continuous war with the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and its affiliates, which is why um, RPAs can be used currently in non-war zones. So on the note of autonomy that I was discussing earlier, so it takes roughly 82 people to fly a single RPA. There are shift teams of pilots, a sensor operator, and an intelligence analyst at minimum, with often teams of sensors and analysts at different locations. Drones um, often fly in combat air patrols, um, run through the CIA, the US Military Joint Special Operations Command, and the National Security Agency. Uh, with the Mod 9 Reaper and variations that vary across different branches of the military, which kind of call it a different name, but it's essentially the same system. So there are also some less discussed types of um, remotely piloted kind of systems. Uh, there are what is usually called land drones, which um, sometimes carry things, um, sometimes help to sense landmines, things like that. There are also UUVs, which are unmanned underwater vehicles. And there's also some new swarm technology that's currently coming out with very small um, sort of technological things. So around the world in general, with the use of drones, democracies have actually been found um, by Furman and Horowitz in a 2014 study to actually have significant internal incentives to develop unarmed UAVs. So there is a direct and indirect uh, linkage between territorial disputes and UAVs, and democracies tend to favor UAVs because they prefer capital-intensive over labor-intensive militaries. However, with authoritarian regimes, they may help dictators increase control of a military and reduce chances of revolt. So there are significant incentives there as well. Internationally, there are nine countries that have used um, this type of technology in combat. So that is the US, Israel, the United Kingdom, Pakistan, Iraq, Nigeria, Iran, Turkey, and Azerbaijan. And those are, those are the recorded instances, so there could be more, and it's changing. So Israel is the most prominent uh, state to use drones apart from the US. So they mostly used in Palestine to quell insurgency and respond to Hamas. Um, Israel is also a very significant exporter with very similar models to the US. And China has been known to use this type of technology to surveil uh, its own citizens. So with that, uh, David's going to talk a little bit more about some of the general recent developments. Thanks, Phoebe. And yeah, I mean, as you guys can see from this episode, countries are always looking for a technological advantage. But over time, this has gotten easier and easier. And now it's not just the rich and powerful countries that are able to have uh, strong, solid, uh, and effective military technology. So one of the ways that non-state actors in smaller countries are able to do this is through the advent of 3D printing, which has become much more prominent uh, in the world recently. Uh, people are able to get blueprints available online, or they're able to get them from, obviously, other countries or actors, and then they're able to print out uh, weapons and weapons technology in a way that uh, gives them a real step up on competition, and in a way that's going to be hard for countries like the United States and the international community 
to control. Uh, so for isolated states like North Korea, who are subject to arms embargoes from around the world, it becomes much easier for them to develop technology that they wouldn't be able to get their hands on otherwise uh, by 3D printing, by getting those parts and plans for those parts online. Um, but as Tanisha discussed before, obviously a lot of this technology is susceptible to hacking as many of the blueprints and um, other production processes take place online or at least through electronic systems. And so when larger countries, or when any countries for that matter, uh, are using these parts as part of larger projects, uh, we see a pretty significant risk of hacking, getting in and uh, changing the plans for these parts and making parts defective, which can ultimately lead to catastrophes. Uh, if these parts are being used for larger projects like planes or helicopters or things like that. And luckily that's something that hasn't happened as of yet, but it's an important implication to consider as the world moves forward uh, with more online and technology-based technology like 3D printing. Uh, it's also important to note that uh, this 3D printing can often take place without a lot of the massive uh, weapons and military supply chain that is uh, dominated um, a lot of the more industrialized countries for a very long time, especially the United States. And so the ability of countries to rely less on international trade and rely less on these giant companies uh, for their military parts, for their military weapons, and for their military technologies, something that could have uh, political implications as we move forward. Now, that said, as at its heart, war is about soldiers on the ground. Um, that said, though, technology has extended to this area as well. And a lot of... Uh, you know, contemporary countries are using technology to actually improve and augment the experiences of their soldiers when they're in combat. So, you know, historically, certainly drugs have been uh, very well used by countries, but now countries are improved the abilities of their soldiers. So, for example, the United States has been recently looking to improve the ability of soldiers to adapt to training and to retain information. And further, uh, we've seen studies that have allowed um, subjects to control uh, I'm going to start this part again. Further, we have recently seen subjects be able to control prosthetic limbs using could potentially allow soldiers to control things like um, UAVs or, or other technology with only their minds if that technology improves further. So it's important to note that. But beyond the actual soldiers, the technology that they're using is, of course, getting better and better. Uh, currently, the United States is, uh, and Canada and many countries have put out contracts to various different companies and researchers to attempt to get more technology that they can better use in the ba battlefield. A company called Tracking Point has launched a smart rifle that will be able to tag targets and then enable uh, users to target uh, those actual tag targets, which will enable better uh, accuracy for those who aren't perhaps as trained or experienced with weapons. Further, lasers are becoming uh, much more used in uh, both on both on ships uh, as well as uh, on tanks. Although the technology isn't quite small enough yet for uh, use on most land vehicles, uh, they are being tested at the moment to be able to take down uh, flying vehicles, which many countries anticipate will be uh, a large part of the future of warfare. As uh, flying vehicles, especially those that aren't controlled by humans, uh, become or aren't controlled directly by humans in the air, rather become more uh, more common on the battlefield. And finally, planes and ships have become much more advanced in recent years. Uh, the U.S. Army is currently looking for uh, a plane that's going to be able to uh, strike a target anywhere in the world without refueling, uh, that might be able to operate with or without a pilot, is underway. And further, it's important to note that space, what some know as the final frontier, um, since Trump's comments of a, of a space force, uh, these, are actually, th these projects are actually moving forward, although there are some... So, uh, it, overall, it's very clear that technology is moving at a very rapid pace. It's uh, to uh, 
uh, project their power on the world stage and even beyond uh, the physical world. We'll conclude our discussion on recent developments in technology, move into our interview with Dr. Breed. So for part two of our episode, we're going to be interviewing Dr. Breed, who again is a major in the Canadian Armed Forces who focuses on emerging tech and warfare. So Dr. Breed, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we're really glad to have you on the show. Uh, now to start off, did you want to introduce yourself and let us know a little bit about your research? Sure, yeah. First off, thanks so much for the opportunity. Um, this is uh, kind of a first for me, so I'm, this, is, this is interesting. I've uh, never done a podcast before, so forgive my, my, uh, my mistakes. Um, but I, I do want to just talk a little bit about how I came to this whole topic of emerging tech and, and the concept of war and conflict in general. This is, first off, I'm, I'm a giant nerd. Um, <laughs> I love science fiction, um, and so this was just a, a natural fit. And it started in 2013, 2014, after we wrapped up our first research project, and uh, we're trying to figure out what we want to do next. And so the topic of human performance enhancement came up, and I jumped on it because I, I love everything that has to do with science fiction. So, you know, I, like I said, that's, that's kind of a, a passion of mine. And so this seemed like a real natural fit. And so we started looking at this question of, of soldier enhancement and how to, how to do so you know, in a responsible way because the, the challenge we've been finding is there's a lot of negative uh, perceptions around it. You, know, you think about soldier enhancement and everyone's the, the hairs get up on the back of your neck and you, right. just, you think of all the dystopian science fiction you've read and it just all sounds bad. The ethical implications are huge. And so instead what we wanted to do was look at, um, well, we have, to look, we have to look at it first and foremost. And so we want to look at how we can do this responsibly because at the end of the day, it's going to happen. It's out there. And what was especially terrifying was that the leading edge of this, the bleeding edge even, was really uh, in, in what, you know, almost in the dark web. It was, it was being done by people off the grid, people outside of research laboratories without ethics oversight, and yet doing some very innovative things, really stemming from the, the body modification community and things mm -hmm. like that. So you can just imagine people embedding chips on their own time, embedding little magnets into their fingers and things like that. And so we very much felt that the policy landscape was behind the curve, so to speak, on the emerging technology, and we wanted to rectify that. So we put in some grants and put, ran a few workshops, and we have a publication actually coming out, uh, hopefully in the next year or so, uh, that we've called Transhumanizing War, which, which addresses all these issues from a policy perspective. Mm -hmm. And so now that that's kind of coming to an end, we wanted to see what the next step was going to be. And so I, I really found an interest in this, this, this emerging technology question, but moving beyond just soldier enhancement and really looking at the questions of, of acceleration, uh, complexity, and disruption, which uh, are sort of three themes that I think kind of capture what's happening with this question of emerging technology. And so what I mean by emerging technology are things like artificial intelligence and machine learning, human robot teaming, um, autonomous systems in general, the internet, um, and, and technologies along that, primarily related to computing power and, and the rapid acceleration we've seen over the last few decades in the power of computers. Um, you just think of the smartphones you have in front of you right now. They can do things that used to take room full, rooms full of computers not, not too many decades ago to compute. Um, and so what's that doing to war and, and conflict in general? And there's been some interesting examples throughout the last you know, 10 years or so that really start to should suggest that perhaps things are changing in a really fundamental way. And so that's what I'm wanting to look at. And so I've had a, an opportunity to collaborate with some interesting folks over the last few few months, and we've got some exciting projects in the works, one of which is a, a micro-net that we're putting through the Ideas Grant that D&D just announced last year in their strong, secure, and engaged research policy, or sorry, uh, security policy. And so we're hoping that's going to result in a network of institutions, both academic and industry, that are going to get together and look at how some of these technologies can be used in a responsible way. And I'm one of the, the co-investigators on that project. So hopefully we'll see something come to that. We're putting in the proposal actually at the end of this month. So oh, that's great. we'll see. Yeah. 
so that's kind of what, what I'm looking on right now. We're, we're looking for a variety of, of deliverables in terms of you know, courses, uh, publications, and, and not least of which is going to be a book, I hope, in the next couple of years that's going to come out on this. Um, but as you can imagine, the, the landscape changes quickly. Yeah. Um, so keeping on top of it is as big a challenge as anything. For sure, I can imagine. Yeah, so you touched on it um, very briefly there, but in the last decade, uh, how do you think that new technology has kind of affected foreign and defense policy? It's done a number of things, um, and I, you know, in the interest of time, there's, there's a few things, and we have to be selective in terms of what yeah, we highlight. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but one of the things that comes to mind right away is this question of attribution. Um, so back in the quote-unquote good old days, um, if something happened, if there was an international incident, it was very easy to determine who was at fault, who, who originated it, right? If a shot was fired, if a, a bullet uh, wounded someone, you know, at the, the most, at the, the lowest level, if a, if a ship or an aircraft strayed into someone else's airspace or, or, or waters, it's very easy to figure who that was and who's at, who's at fault. Nowadays, with especially in the, with the, the internet and, and, and the whole cyber domain coming forward, figuring out who's responsible for a hack, right. who's responsible for a theft of intellectual property, um, have you even been hacked or is this just some kind of natural uh, error in your in your system? It's really unclear. And so that makes that this whole question of, of, of what your response should be equally unclear mm -hmm. and equally challenging. And so we start to get into concepts, uh, certainly within the literature on conflict and war, we get into concepts of hybrid war, gray war, things like that. One of the earliest examples that uh, I got to uh, get become aware of was, in fact, the Russian incursion into Georgia in 2008 was of course precipitated by a, a massive cyber attack, a distributed denial of service attack on the, on the Georgian internet and, and, and government uh, networks. And that precipitated a more physical kinetic attack after the fact. But even then, um, we see the activities in the recent, the, the recent years, recent months even, that um, all sorts of discussions of who was responsible for the DNC hack, um, voter suppression, voter, you know, just swaying opinion through things like uh, social media and whatnot. This is all enabled by these emerging technologies that really that fundamentally changed the landscape, not just in conflict, but in, in fact how states relate to each other uh, in, in a more general sense. For sure. And, you know, within these new technologies, are there any that you consider particularly beneficial or particularly harmful in any way? Um, the real, th the thing about the technology is it's, it really is a question of dual use. And mm -hmm. this sort of permeates all the discussions about emerging technology, whether it's AI, whether it's robotics, autonomous systems, what have you. It's all about dual use. So these technologies have incredible value uh, to society, to the economy, to individuals. Just imagine right now if you didn't have the internet. Um, yeah, And I, right. I again, think personally, and I'm sure you guys feel the same way. I know even for my, my graduate studies, um, I can count on one hand the number of times I went to a library mm -hmm. because it was all available online. I, I, I would go to the library with a mission, with a card, with all the books I needed as opposed to pouring over stacks, which, you know, the nostalgia, uh, the nostalgic side of me really kind of laments that and wishes yeah. that was still the case, but at the same time, it's incredibly efficient. Yeah. So you can now do research so much faster and so much more effectively because um, the information is right at your fingertips. So that's great. The downside of that is that everyone's connected. Right. Um, and because everyone's connected, uh, bad ideas and bad intentions flow just as fast and just as quickly as good ideas and good intentions. And so there's this pernicious dual use piece with any kind of emerging technology. So in terms of, say, artificial intelligence and even autonomous systems, this came out of a workshop I was at a few years ago, uh, just in advance of uh, an effort by the uh, Project Plowshares to put forward a campaign to stop killer robots. I don't know if you guys track this at all, but it was a, a couple of years ago the United Nations was, was hearing cases and hearing arguments uh, to put forward some, some conventions and some, some ideas to, to curtail this notion of 
of quote-unquote killer robots, which first and foremost I think is kind of a, a bad moniker. It seems a little childish. It's better terms to use. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, what they're getting at is a real problem. And one of the things that came out of the workshop, which was really interesting, because we had, again, military industry partners as well as just you know uh, political scientists as well in this room, was this question of dual use. Uh, autonomous systems that are viable in terms of uh, they're able to do things without human intervention are out there. They exist. Mm -hmm. They're being used um, all, all the time in factories and have been for years. Um, it's only a matter of time before someone puts a weapon system on that. Right. And it's really easy to do. Um, and so because of that, a ban on such systems is almost impossible. Mm -hmm. It would be like trying to ban the internet because right. we're not happy with the hacks or the social media problems that are being generated through you know, influencing through trolls and whatnot. It's the same problem. So that's a long roundabout answer to kind of get at your question about you know what what are the what are the what are the most problematic technologies and it's it's not so much that the technologies themselves are problematic but it's the dual use aspect of them right about them so, being kind of good and also bad exactly. and finding that yeah so ground. there's lots of benefit to be had uh, you think about the autonomous aircraft that we see you know that sort of are the symbol of the the 911 wars right mm -hmm. the wars in Afghanistan and, and Iraq uh, in the 2000s you know they they have this unfortunate moniker of drone which is really inaccurate, um, and it's something that we at the CIDP especially have been trying to, to dispel. They're autonomous aircraft, or sorry, not they're not autonomous aircraft, they're, they're remotely piloted aircraft. Mm -hmm. They have yeah. autonomous features in that they can loiter on their own without intervention, they can do some elements of terrain mapping on their own, they take you know, minimal input to fly from point A to point B, um, but there's absolutely a person on the other end of that camera flying yeah. the aircraft. Now there's lag times and things where, the, again, the autonomy becomes important. But these aircraft are not making decisions on terms of whether or not to fire uh, a weapon system um, or whether to go from point A to point B. They're, yeah. they're, that's being influenced by a person. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we discussed this earlier in the episode, yeah. and um, I spoke about how um, the term drone and even the term UAV is kind of incorrect and misleading. Right, And exactly. we, we have discussed, yeah, um, calling them RPAs and why that's so much more accurate. Right. No, that's, that's great. And then the more people can get on to dispel that myth, the better. Because it'll, it'll just lower the temperature of the debate by probably Absolutely, an order of yeah. um, There's still lots of problems associated with those. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. But it's not about whether or not a machine is making a decision to take life. Yeah, absolutely um, not. That's not the question. There's all sorts of other questions that are very important and worth looking at. But that's not the one. Yeah. So you were mentioning um, some of the, the hacks and like the DNC hack. So keeping in mind that recent hacking and the hacking of um, state and security and organizational uh, systems in general, what is the impact of relying on a cyber network to keep information secure? So I'm going to lean on a, uh, an old colleague of mine uh, years ago who made a comment saying effectively, uh, if you want it to be secure, don't put it online. Um, <laughs> yeah. If it's online, it's not secure. If it's online, it has the potential to be online forever. Uh, this is something that we're trying to teach our children all the time, which is you know, if you take a photo and post it, that's going to be there for the rest of the life of 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 the of the network. Mm -hmm. right? Not it, it will even you know, probably outlive you as a human being. So it's out there. It's, it becomes permanent record whether you like it or not. Um, so in terms of um, you know how secure things can be to to, to network attacks, uh, my simple answer is they they aren't. Um, it becomes a matter of uh, you know two two pieces. One is how how tempting the target is, how valuable the target is, so how valuable the thing is you're trying to secure, mm -hmm. that will be a factor. And the other part is, is um, what is the security environment you're operating in. So if you're the most secure thing on your network, chances are 
other aspects of the network will get attacked. So right. this again goes back to my, my colleague uh, from a few years ago who who, I, who who brought this forward. He says he suggested you know simple things just for, as a consumer you know putting a, a lock on your phone, lock on your computer, puts you in that next order of 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 potential targets. It's like having a security system in your house or not. You have a security system in your house, it's not going to guarantee that no one's ever going to break into your house, but it will at least guarantee, deter someone enough to go to a house that doesn't have a security system. Right, right. Um, it's the same thing with a lock on your phone. Mm -hmm. However, at the end of the day, if you have something that is of value to whoever it is trying to break into your system and they have the means to do it, they will. They will succeed. Um, there's no end of, of uh, it's, it's actually the, probably the better way to explain this is it's, it's like an escalation ladder. You come up with uh, an, an effective defense, they will come up with an equally effective uh, solution to break that defense, right. and then it just keeps ratcheting up mm -hmm. in complexity. Um, you know, we've got some fairly robust security measures now, but even those, there's questions about you know the impact of quantum computing if that's going to render all of our cryptography useless. But there's even a debate in the field on that. Arguments on both sides suggesting, well, quantum computing is great, but we just need to come up with a new key. And and once we have a new key, it's 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 all we're we're, we're fine again. We're going to be secure. So even there, there's no consensus on on the challenges that that, that that poses. But as a philosophy, you have to expect that what's online is effectively vulnerable to some Right, thing. right. Um, so you can just, it just becomes a spectrum of how much security you put in. But it's a trade-off too. The more secure something is, the less accessible it is to, to and gives it that use value as well. And so you reduce the use value if you make mm -hmm. it too secure. But that's with anything, whether mm -hmm. it's uh, you know, a lock in, in a cabinet or, or on your computer. Right, we were talking about it um, earlier with um, the hack the Pentagon and some other like um, innovative sort of like solutions to yeah. to that of like outsourcing that type of um, like vulnerability finding. Okay, yeah. So like the the hackers are the good guys. Yeah, just trying yeah. To yeah. Find yeah. Solutions, yeah. right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now going in a slightly different direction, do you see a point in the future where it's not people who make the decision to kill, but rather AI? And how would this interact with the uh, the existing framework of international law and the right to intervene? Yeah, so this came up in that same workshop I mentioned earlier that mm -hmm. Project Plowshares uh, hosted a few years back. And uh, the consensus around the room was that from their read of existing military doctrine, military policy, and certainly my perspective as a, as a, as a serving military officer, is that's the last thing we want. Right. Yeah. Um, there will always be what we call a human in the loop. And I'm sure that concept came up in some of your, your, your research that you did in preparation for this. Um, but this idea that there's always going to be a human being making the final uh, decision whether or not mm -hmm. to take life, whether or not to um, fire that weapon system or not, to what degree they're removed from that um, that immediate target might be might change. But I don't see a time or place where we're going to completely cede that responsibility and that authority to a, to a machine or to an algorithm. Now, saying that, there's some interesting examples. Again, not having to go to like cutting edge technology. There's technology that's been uh, fielded for decades that actually does render leave that decision to uh, to assist to to an algorithm to uh, to a computer and uh, the most famous one is the the phalanx closing weapon system that you see on most modern navy ships it's designed to uh, you know they can be tweaked of course and, and it's, it's, it's it's monitored but it's designed to engage incoming missiles um, and to destroy them before they they they, they can threaten the ship uh, mm -hmm. particularly the carrier battle groups in the united states but you know canadian vessels carry them as well and the reason they're designed that way is because the time of flight is so short for these missile systems that it's not possible from the time that it's tracked and detected to the time that it needs to be destroyed to have a human being make that decision. And so we've trusted autonomous systems in the past to do these decisions for us, but it's within very narrow constraints. Uh, but in terms of the, the broad 
application you're talking about, sort of that, that classic Terminator um, uh, scenario, uh, it's it's not something I think the military wants. I don't think it's something that's going to happen. I think the, uh, the human will always be in the loop. Which brings up an interesting side point on top of this whole, in particular with the artificial intelligence debate. Um, there's a real misconception on terms of what artificial intelligence really is. Um, one of the ways I like to explain it to my students is uh, this, this distinction between narrow and general intelligence. Okay. Right now, despite all the advances we've had in recent years, even recent months, and all the interesting stories you've heard about whether you know, we've developed a computer that can beat a chess player, we've developed a computer that can beat someone at the game of Go, mm -hmm. um, all amazing technology, mm -hmm. all still we call narrow general or narrow artificial intelligence. And what narrow artificial intelligence is, just to keep it simple, is it's, it's nothing new. Your calculator that you had in elementary school or high school is a narrow general intelligence, or sorry, a narrow artificial intelligence. And what I mean by that is it does a cer certain thing or a particular thing better than any human ever could. Right. So a calculator adds numbers together, calculates uh, um, sums and products and, and things like that in a way that far exceeds what any human being could do, faster right. and more accurately, right? Same with Go, with AlphaGo, that, uh, that uh, the famous computer that, that is really good at Go and can beat any human being at Go. That's awesome. It's still a narrow uh, artificial intelligence. What people are scared about is the artificial general intelligence, or AGI. That's where you get folks like Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk, um, and uh, Bill Gates, who've, you know, amongst others, who've, who've written extensively about the fact that you know, artificial intelligence, as Haw Hawking famously said, will be humans, the human's last invention. Right, because after that we don't need to worry about it. Nick Bostrom's analogy of the paperclip uh, maximizer as the example of why this is such a bad thing—they're um, all talking about uh, artificial general intelligence, where the artificial intelligence takes on not human-like qualities, but the intelligence supersedes that of any human being, right. um, and then does so rapidly. And the concern, of course, is that we wouldn't see it until it was too late, because it would learn and adapt so quickly that it would hit that point and surpass it beyond, you know, so fast we wouldn't even see it coming. But in terms of where we are on the timeline of that, there's uh, those that really focus on artificial intelligence say, you know, we're still very much within that realm of, of narrow artificial intelligence. So even the autonomous systems that are being put into cars are still considered narrow artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. They're more capable than what you have in your calculator. Right. But they're still narrow in terms of their, their very specific task. So it's important to understand that because all of this, of course, too, relates back to the fact that you talk about human in the loop. Mm -hmm. Humans are in the loop when it comes to artificial intelligence. Um, all the algorithms that are out there that are, you know, whether it's machine learning or, or, or what have you, are fed and empowered and made possible, made, re made, made useful by our inputs as human beings. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to know things like Instagram, yeah, um, right, yeah. right? You, you tag photos on Instagram, right? You think you have this really cool free app and you can mm -hmm. tag photos and share it with everybody. One of the reasons why it's free is that Instagram as a corporation gets a huge amount of data from you as a user. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So every time you tag a photo, you're helping its algorithms learn what a cat looks like, learn what a certain type of food looks like. And if you, if you scale that up to you know, a million people tagging photos of cats every month, Mm -hmm. You know, you're doing, you're developing a, you're feeding a machine learning algorithm all sorts of data that lets it learn what a cat looks like. Yeah. So it can look at a new picture that it hasn't seen before and say, yes, that's a cat. Mm -hmm. So that's how these apps work, and that's so, and that's where we are. So all these algorithms really don't work unless we're involved. Right. So we human beings still have an integral uh, piece to it. Um, and so this is a lot. Primarily, this argument comes from uh, the work of uh, James Hendler and uh, his his team who put a book out of just, just last year, actually, uh, or two years ago, I think, called uh, Social Machines. Mm -hmm. 
And this is the argument they're making, is that even the internet, which they call the ultimate social machine, only makes sense because there's human beings plugged into it. Right. And, and giving content and giving meaning to this, this interconnectivity, which is still incredibly powerful and has all the challenges that we talked about before. Um, but ultimately it comes down to, to us. You know, so we're still very much involved. So would you say that humans are the main, um, I guess, conveyors or main, their goal is to essentially uh, get this information and it's just emerging technology that's helping us get that and, and forwarding that in the future? To a point. I think a lot of, and this is the part of the reason why I love this research and, and you know, every time I bring this forward to my students, like their, their eyes kind of light up and like, oh my God, I had no idea. Um, it's, it's, it's done almost out of ignorance. Uh, we don't understand half the time the technology that we're using mm -hmm. and, and what it's doing and how it works and, and what we're giving up in terms of our personal information or any information for that matter. Like the data that we're generating has value. Yeah. Um, and we don't see it. We don't understand it. We don't appreciate it. Um, and except for a select few within society who work on these algorithms, who work on these systems, you know, they get it completely, which again is why these apps are free. Um, in terms of our role and and, and the relationship of you know who's who's driving what I think it's 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 becoming a two-way street, and this is the part that gets really scary. And I, I sort of think back to uh, some of the work of Yuval Noah Harari, who's probably one of the the top sort of futurists out there. And I would commend you read any of his stuff. He's got three books out, uh, one about the past, one about the present, one about the future. And when he gave a book talk uh, a few a few years ago, or I guess a few months ago. The interviewer joked and said, well, that's interesting. You've written these three books. What are you going to do next? Because you've kind of covered everything. And he joked and said, well, you're probably right, but I think I've got another one in me or something along <laughs> those lines. But all that to say, what he's getting at is one of his big goals is to sort of say, you know, what is it that we need to learn going forward? You know, what do I, what do I teach my kids? What, what, what skills should my kids learn? What skills should my grandkids focus on? What do we need to be focusing on teaching in universities and in high schools? And interestingly enough, it's not coding. Mm -hmm. It's not being tech savvy. What it is, in fact, is focusing not only on the human skills, which I'm sure you've heard before, but you know, we need to focus on creativity to right. give us a leg yeah. up on autonomous automation that's going to, you know, end, you know, 40% of all jobs in Canada, as one report put it. You know, all those things are there, but what, what Harari says is sort of the thing that you need to focus on is uh, knowing yourself, which I thought was really cool. It's a really kind of fuzzy, warm feeling idea that says just get to know who you are because yeah. when you talk about our role with technology in the past it used to you talk about security right in the past if you had something of value you were at risk of being being hacked and right. you need to understand that and understand how to secure your information mm -hmm. as because we're now all in interconnected we're in this system this machine this ultimate social machine um, of the internet we're all vulnerable now mm -hmm. we're all hackable and that's what these programs are doing. That's what these algorithms are doing. They're hacking us. Yeah. So how I, do you, sorry, yeah. Yeah, I feel like people don't realize the, um, to what extent our information and our, uh, our involvement on social media and, and other yeah. apps are, like, can be affected by yeah. technology. You're being manipulated every yeah. time you log into Facebook. Mm -hmm. Every time you log on to Instagram or Snapchat, you're being manipulated. You're being mm -hmm. There are algorithms that are, or the algorithms running behind these, these apps are purposely designed to get you to stay on that app as long as possible. Right. You guys all know about the concept of infinite scroll, right? Right. right. Yeah. yeah. Right? How it just never stops. Yeah. You can, and, you can, and I've done this, and, and it's, it's, it's horrible when I finally you know, become mindful of what I'm doing, and I'm mm -hmm. like, oh my God, I'm a moron. 
Yeah. I, I remember when it was invented, when I yeah. like I was on Facebook, like when infinite scroll started to happen and there was a recent article by the person who invented infinite scroll yes. and he talked about how much he regretted it. Yeah. Um <laughs> how much it was a terrible idea and how much it affects yeah. people today. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, his his last name escapes me, but his first name is very distinct. Is this Tristan? I think made this point, right? And so, absolutely. Um, so, what Harari is getting at is is is, is know yourself. Mm -hmm. Know what are the things that get you hooked. What are the things that that you are interested in, and under and just be mindful whenever you interact with your computer or your phone. Be mindful that everything you're interacting with is there to keep you glued to it, to mm -hmm. keep you right. continuing to interact with it. Yeah. Because you you are the ultimate source of value for all these devices, which is your data. And this leads to an interesting sort of uh, potential new direction for things like policy. Like the implications are pretty huge and pretty interesting and counterintuitive too in terms of what starts to become valuable going forward. Right. You know, is it, is it, uh, is it what we make? Is it what we do? Or is it our information? Right. Is it our own personal data that now suddenly has value, especially when I take my information and put it alongside your information and your information and everyone's information in this building, we start getting into some really interesting correlations and inferences that can be drawn from that information if you have access to it. Mm -hmm. That has value. And so this is where a lot of folks in, in the policy community are talking about you know, changing what we value and saying we need to move to things like the information economy or the, or the, uh, the data economy. And that is how people start generating new value, especially in this age of automation, where we really need to get to a point where we de-link what we do from what we earn in terms of, 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 a, of, a, of an income, a living wage, because automation is upon us. And yes, you know, 40% of all jobs are going to be destroyed by automation in the next 40 years, mm -hmm. says this report from Ryerson not too long ago. And yes, of course, lots of new jobs are going to be created too. Of course, of course. But that transition is still going to be really, really rough. Um, it's going to be really hard to retrain in the moment people from one completely different uh, field and set of expertise and skills into something else. We can't turn everyone into data scientists and computer programmers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, eventually that's going to happen, or eventually we'll move even beyond that. But I think in the short term, in the medium term, there's some pretty acute policy challenges, not just with conflict, but with society in general. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and like a lot of these, um, a lot of these questions bring up um, the question of ethics, and we talk a lot about ethics um, in our society today. So my question is that um, from the standpoint of competitive technology and kind of pushing um, these technologies further, will the ethical codes that we have and that Western liberal democracies have hinder the, de the development of um, potentially beneficial technology? Possibly. Yep. And uh, there's, there's kind of a glib response to this, and then there's a more nuanced and, and a little bit more, more useful response. But the glib response, and I've used this you know, with my soldiers when we deployed overseas on you know, totally different topics and issues, but but same sort of idea and philosophy, which is, frankly, sometimes it sucks to be the good guy. You know, right. It's hard to do the right thing. It's sometimes why it's the right thing. Um, it's easier to go down the path and, 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 and forget your ethics, forget your values and your morals, and just do what's easy, do what's pragmatically feasible and makes the most sense in the short run. Um, but this sort of, this, this question actually was really the, the the foundation for why Dr. Von Lackey and I looked at human performance enhancement in the first place mm -hmm. uh, you know, a few years ago was because we felt that as ethically challenging as the question of soldier enhancement is, for all sorts of good reasons, we still need to look at it because right. we're going to face potential situations where we're up against an opponent who might not be so constrained by the ethics, right. might not care. And now our soldiers are facing enhanced soldiers 
and we're at a disadvantage. So there's an ethic, ethical obligation almost to ensure that our soldiers are the best prepared mm -hmm. for these situations. So what does that look like? And that's the question that we started to settle in on. And a uh, bit of a spoiler alert in case you don't want to buy the book when it comes out, <laughs> whatever that is, yeah. uh, is we basically settle, settle on the idea that these, these sort of non-invasive technologies like exoskeletons and wearable computers are the preferable option to right. more invasive technologies such as uh, bioengineering and, and, and body modification. We'd be less inclined to do that. Because ultimately we're sort of guided by the under, underlying principle of um, one day a soldier will no longer be a soldier. Mm -hmm. And we really hope that one day that soldier will not only no longer be a soldier, but actually become a, a member of society in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, and so that means those enhancements either have to be removed or we have evolved to such a point in terms of society that those enhancements are in fact not enhancements, but they're just normal. Right. Right. And so what is that going to look like? And so these are the questions that we grappled with in terms of ethics. And I think these same ethics um, that same sort of perspective applies to with any kind of emerging technology we talk about. And again, it goes back to the question of dual use. Um, all these technologies have absolutely beneficial uh, impacts on society and, and, and outcomes for society, but they also can have very, very damaging ones to, to the way in which our society is organized right now. Mm -hmm. As sort of a follow-up question, uh, with the increases in surveillance capabilities through emerging technologies, um, how are civilians at home and uh, abroad affected? Um, well, first and foremost, again, it kind of goes back to your question, uh, Vivi, about uh, security. Mm -hmm. um, again, it's very hard to be secure, be discreet, and, and in this current environment where you know, we, the things you, again, all the stuff we have on our desks here, our smartphones, our computers, these are all surveillance devices mm -hmm. as well right. as, as communication devices. You know, communication is a two-way street. Um, there's a reason why sometimes people put little stickers over top of their webcams yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, when they're on their laptops, <laughs> uh -huh. right? Because some uh, there are there are programs and hacks that can get in there and, and activate those cameras without you being aware of it, and suddenly you're being surveilled. Um, again, it goes back to our what makes you the target and and things like that. Sort of as, if you um, if you have something, if you're known, then you're more likely to be a target as, right. as others. But it's still possible those 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 things exist. What I find interesting, and this is a comment that a colleague of mine made in, in the classroom a few years ago, was uh, they were surprised that in terms of the differences between generations, how there seems to be almost an acceptance among the younger generation um, of the fact that, well, my information is, is going to be accessed sometime, somewhere. I'm going to be monitored. I'm going to be surveilled. And you, you sort of seem to be at ease with that and less Definitely. concerned about it than older generations. I think, sure, I think we yeah. are because you can't escape it, like yeah. no matter how many times you cover up your camera no matter how like no matter what you do yeah. you're there and like it's too late like yep. so you have to accept it you have to just be like okay yeah. well like they're gonna, yeah yeah be able to they're gonna see me yeah. and it, yeah it doesn't matter i have to be able to deal with that and live with that so there's an interesting concept that comes out of this um because of course there's all sorts of negatives that come from the idea of everyone being surveilled all the time the, you know, the lack of privacy and whatnot but if you play this out to you know, not a logical extreme, but you certainly play it farther forward, you get to something that's called this idea of meta-surveillance. And meta-surveillance argues that, or, or makes the point that, you know, once you've got surveillance that becomes so pervasive that everyone is surveilled, everyone is, like, there are no secrets, there are no um, opportunities for, uh, for secrecy, then that also means there's no opportunities for things like corruption and brushing things under the rug. And so, in fact, it leads to more transparency. It leads to that true vision of transparency that we all sort of aspire to when we, take, when we think of government, for example. So if the surveilled are being surveilled themselves through this idea of meta-surveillance, because just as easy it is for you to be surveilled, it's equally easy on this, this vision of meta-surveillance for you to surveil what's going on. Mm -hmm. 
And so you can know what the government's doing because it's all every, it's everywhere. So right. it's kind of like, it's, it's, that's the logic behind things like putting body cameras on police officers. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Is, is that if the police officer knows that they're always being monitored, they will always act ethically and in the best mm-hmm. interest of, of the community in which they're policing. Right. That's not a bad, that's, that's, that's a good thing. But there's mm-hmm. of course all sorts of other negatives that come from it too, because sometimes there's, there's, there's ethical gray areas that policing sometimes leads you into that mm-hmm. you know, don't become immediately obvious until after the fact. Sometimes I, right. I'm not an, an expert in policing, but I've got friends in the community. Mm-hmm. They're not fans of body, body cameras right? Uh, yeah. because it, 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 it's unclear how it's going to be used because again, that, that there's, we don't have the whole picture. It's almost like we're, in, we're rolling out bits of technology, um, but not in a holistic fashion. So mm-hmm. as we get there, it becomes really problematic. Mm-hmm. Right. It becomes concerning. There's lacks of lack of privacy. Who has the information that they're collecting from us? We don't know. Once you get over that hump and get to this notion of meta surveillance where everyone has access to everything, there are no secrets. Governments can't act corruptly. Governments can't can't hide things. And that should, in theory, philosophically, put behavior on, on the right path and keep things ethical. Just going back to uh, that generational difference we were talking yeah. about, do you think that younger generations should be more cautious or, or even just more aware that their um, information is being surveilled? I'd say yes to both. Um, I'd say definitely cautious. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, it's one of the things that we're trying to make sure our kids understand. And I'm I'm sure your parents are doing the same thing. Make sure you understand (laughs) Mm -hmm. whatever you put online uh, is going to be there forever. And Mm -hmm. this is going to be with you until, um, you know, until the network is destroyed, Mm -hmm. right? Whenever, you know, it it will always be there. And there's some interesting follow-ons or or implications for things like those vying for political office. Right, And we're starting to see that now where folks um, who are running for office are being held to almost an impossible standard. Mm -hmm. You know, tweets that they made when they were in high school are being used against them and and disqualifying them for public office. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Like, we we see, like, that's just a common joke among, among people our age. Like, oh, yeah, like... Well, I'll never want to run for office anyway, so it doesn't matter if I yeah. post this, right? right. Or like until you do. Yeah. <laughs> until something does happen. Does someone at the age of sixteen know what they want to do with the rest of their life? Right. Exactly. And at the same time, is it fair to put that kind of pressure on someone who's sixteen years old to say, mm-hmm. you know, what you're about to do is going to change, is going to have an impact on the rest of your life? Mm-hmm. Like that's 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 impossible. Yeah. To uh, to place on it. And often you can't even conceptualize that right. as a teenager. Yeah, like exactly. it doesn't matter if you tell them because like yeah. they can't see that it's not real yeah it's exactly so yeah there's there's a real uh danger so awareness and 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 all that is is really important um certainly there's no point in trying to curtail things or change things but certainly they need you need to the generation your generation needs to be aware Mm -hmm. and understand this goes back to harari's comment you know just understand what's happening use it by all means use it but do it knowingly do it mindfully do it and that's what ultimately leads to responsible use of, of of anything Right. Understand what is it doing to you? What is the cost benefit? What is the interaction um, that you're actually engaging in? And I think that's something that people are grappling with right now, for sure. Right. So um, our last question is a bit of a different direction. It's more fun. So a recent <laughs> development that um, we'd love to hear your perspective on is kind of the advent of video games and other training tools similar to them yeah. to train soldiers. So how do you think this will change um, job requirements for the future or the ways that we train people? Yeah, no, I, I, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, again, the way I usually think about this is I think about the skill sets that we needed in uh, or, or what are the basic skills that our soldiers needed, say, 50 years ago and, or even 20 years ago. What were the basic skills our soldiers needed? And coming from an infantry officer's background, you know, that's kind of my, my area of, of, of comfort. I can tell you our soldiers need to be able to dig and to shoot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they can dig and they can shoot. You know, we got something we can work with. 
Um, 50 years ago, especially in Canada, most young men that decided to join the infantry knew how to dig and knew how to shoot because they lived on a farm and that was part of the skill set growing up. Um, and so going forward, as we urbanize, as we move away from the family farm, those skills become less and less um, prevalent. And yeah. now it's people skill, can't dig. No, yeah. they can't dig, they can't shoot, they don't have the physical robustness they used to have. And so what we end up having instead is a, a group of recruits or a group of, of recruiting population that we would come from that are much more tech savvy, much more comfortable with, uh, with, with, with technology and, and have different skills. And so now we have to teach them how to dig and shoot, but we have all these other skills that we used to have to try to teach our soldiers to do, which was incredibly difficult. But especially with this generation, you guys are all digital natives. Mm -hmm. So this comes secondhand to you. You guys understand computing way better than I could and way better than any of my, my predecessors could possibly hope to. So an interesting example, uh, this is purely a story and it's probably just an urban legend, uh, but it's cool nonetheless and it, it, it's, it's evocative of this change. Uh -huh. It's apparently in the UK, the Warrior Infantry Fighting Vehicle, which is the infantry's main vehicle for getting around the battlefield. It's a, it's a tracked, mm -hmm. turreted vehicle. Right. It's, uh, you can fight from it. It's very capable. And they were looking at, at doing an overhaul of this vehicle to base, you know, basically with the controls. You know, how can we make this control more intuitive? There's a couple things they did. One is they, and this again totally will date the story, they apparently changed the communication system to a T9 texting system. Now, you don't even know what T9 texting no, is. I'm not I don't even know what it is because it only lasted for about five years, but it was back before you had smartphones, but you still had text messaging. Right. It was apparently a way in which you could send texts really quickly using just a nine-digit keypad. Oh. And okay. it was all like code and stuff. Anyway, there's a tiny cohort of people around the world that that's how they texted. And so they're really good at that. And so they, they tried to introduce that into this vehicle as a way to text, send text messages much more, much more quickly. Mm -hmm. The other one is that they turned the primary controller into something that looked like an Xbox controller. Because mm -hmm. again, that was what was comfortable. Mm -hmm. That was what we understood. And so it's, it's just little things like that start to, start to go forward, um, which is really, really interesting. And um, so in terms of the skills that, that, that we need, the way, the way we need to change, yeah, we need to change the way in which we train, what we focus our training on. And we need to focus more on, on some of those more physical skills like shooting and, and, and digging and things like that. But we need to also incorporate these digital skills that are incredibly useful, but maybe can be incorporated in a way that leverages the knowledge base that we already have. Right. Well, uh, that wraps up our questions for today. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Same here. Yeah. And um, thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been Right of Reply, Episode 3, War, Foreign Policy, and Emerging Technology.